welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Maya Richmond, an alum in the class of 2016 who's now pursuing a master's of social work at the University of Minnesota. As always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio. Here's Maya. Maya, welcome to the Puget Sound podcast. Thank you, Elena. It is such an honor to be here with you today. I am really delighted to have you. Uh, before we get down to business, how's the weather in Minneapolis? It is incredible today, is Elena. It? <laughs> it is 74 degrees. Holy smokes. sunshine. And um, everyone is outside, hopefully socially distancing themselves. Um, but it's a beautiful day in Minnesota. And if any other Minnesotan knows, we do talk about the weather when it's nice outside. <laughs> is that what you expect from May in Minnesota? I would expect it to be in the 60s. I would say a few weeks ago, we had snow around this time last year. And two years ago, we had over a foot of snow. So it is very unpredictable and we will take what we can get. But any weather in Minnesota makes us tough. So we'll take it. <laughs> Except that 75 and sunny sounds like it maybe is a, a little less character building than some of the other possibilities you just listed. I guess you're right. That is a good point. I, everybody listening to this knows by virtue of the fact that you are a guest on the Puget Sound podcast that you're an alum of Puget Sound. Before we get to talking about that, and we will actually spend quite a bit of time talking about that, Will you situate the rest of your life for us? Where are you now? What are you up to? What are you doing in Minnesota? What is sort of, what are the big things structuring your life now post Puget Sound? Absolutely. Right now I'm finishing my first year of the Master of Social Work program at the University of Minnesota. Um, specifically, I am interested in pursuing a social work degree working with new parents, um, working with women with perinatal mood disorders, um, most common of which is postpartum depression, as people know about, and supporting parents in that transition to parenthood, which often many of us think of as rainbows and butterflies, <laughs> but that's not the case for the majority of people and for some people in particular. So really helping new families find structure and joy and secure attachment with their kiddos during this period. And what does that work look like? So before I was in graduate school, to give you a little context of what this work could look like, I was an early childhood specialist and I worked with an organization in Minneapolis that provides housing and advocacy for people experiencing homelessness. And this was your professional career. This is what you did after your undergraduate degree, but before graduate school. Yes. Got it. And I did home visiting where I worked with parents with children under the age of five, supporting them in their hard work as parents. So I used the phrase parent cheerleader <laughs> and made very clear that I'm Never going to tell you what to do, but I'm here to advocate for you and support you in your hard work as parents. And we know so often, especially if there's any parents listening to this podcast right now, there's a lot of judgment 
for being a parent. You get judgment from other parents. You get judgment from health professionals, social service professionals. And what I want to do is help get rid of those barriers, help people get rid of the stigma of being a perfect parent, quote unquote, and helping build resiliency in parents and knowing what does it mean to be a good enough parent? What does it mean, you know, talking and reading and singing to your children? Those are the three key things that make successful parents and attending to their children. And what I found is a lot of parents who did not have supportive parents themselves growing up might have a harder time learning how to be there in a healthy and effective way for their kids. And doing this job, doing this home visiting job with families coming out of homelessness, families who have experienced a lot of trauma and adversity, seeing their resilience and how hard they worked to be good parents was so beautiful and inspiring. Yet these parents, so often what we say should themselves, I should do this, I should do that. This is what people tell me I should do. And my role, as I said before, was to be their cheerleader and help them see all of the beautiful things they're doing as parents. And I wonder how you balance that because I think many of us in whatever roles we hold in our lives are familiar with what it feels like to have that sense of I should, right? I I wonder where the sweet spot maybe is for you between wanting to be supportive and affirming of what you are doing now is good and positive and sufficient and also maybe wanting to add some tools and make some suggestions and fill up somebody's toolbox with strategies or additional things they can do. Am I, am I guessing right that that's also part of your work? Absolutely, Elena. That's a huge part of the work. And I would answer it in a few different ways. One is many parents wanted to get connected with resources. They said, I myself never had the opportunity to take swim lessons or dance class or art class. And I will help them get connected with resources to do those types of classes with or for their children, helping them find free or reduced classes was a a big aspect of my job. And really even talking with them about the myth of motherhood, as we phrase it. And as I said earlier, so often we think of motherhood as rainbows and butterflies and the most beautiful time in one's life. And yes, it does bring rainbows and butterflies. And for many people, it's the most beautiful time of their life. And for many people, it's not. (laughs) And when you talk to parents and say, this is a myth in society. This is not how it looks for everyone. Then they can realize that maybe what they've been told isn't necessarily true. And that they can see the inner strength that they have. They can see what they are doing well with their kids. Because when we're told that we should be this perfect parent, we don't see all of these other things that we're doing well. So just by talking about what are the myths, the stigma in society, then they can more accurately see 
what they are doing well and have the strength even to look at other resources to help them further. And what about doing this work and this job out of college pointed you towards a master's of social work specifically? And in fact, maybe even a better question to start with would be what is a master's of social work? I think a lot of people probably have a a preconceived notion of what that looks like. I would also venture to say that perhaps one of the most famous people holding degrees in social work is Brene Brown, who I think works in ways that are very different than maybe that preconceived notion of what someone who's studied social work has done. Can you just fill us in a little bit on what that field of study is and looks like? Absolutely. Social work is a field where we look at the biological, psychological, and social aspects of humans and human development and understanding how to holistically support individuals, families, and communities. So often, so you can take different tracks within the social work profession and within the social work graduate studies. You could take more of a case management route where you are really connecting people with resources, helping them um, navigate resources in their community, such as working with new immigrants and refugees Mm. or being a hospital social worker and helping people with discharge plans. The route that I'm taking is more of a clinical route within social work, which um, is essentially being a therapist. Mm -hmm. So there's group therapists, individual therapists, family therapists, working with people all the way from birth until death. So with social work, you can have a wide variety of areas within the field. And many people within social work also don't do direct practice. They work more on a macro scale doing policy work. Sure. So within the School of Social Work, we take classes the first year in all areas of social work from macro to micro. And then as we continue on in our studies, we get more focused in the area that we specifically want to study. And understanding that you're in that first year and also understanding that you are probably doing distance learning right now, which I imagine is different than what you were doing earlier this year. Can you talk to us a little bit about what a kind of a day in the life looks like and maybe with a nod to that distance learning, but also if there were things you were doing that uh, were sort of integral to that learning prior to this, I'd be interested to hear about those too. Absolutely. Well, I feel really fortunate to be a graduate student right now. I kind of joke with people, I'm doing very hard work, but I don't need to make any of the big decisions. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I think I kind of take that for granted. But distance learning, of course, as anyone listening who's doing distance learning knows, it is not the same. And I think we really need to let ourselves grieve what we thought our Mm -hmm. educational experiences would feel like because that grief is real. At the same time, um, I have loved my online classes, the compassion and joy that everyone still brings to the room is so alive and present. The professors are really understanding um, of the hard time we are all experiencing. And we have time in each class to process how we've been doing since the past week. We also have a combination of large group discussions and smaller group discussions, which 
is helpful for more comprehensive learning. And so we don't get too zoomed out by looking at 30 faces on a screen at a time. But also, as a social work student, I'm not only am I and myself and other social work students balancing classes and homework, but we're also balancing internships, which are an integral part of the social work graduate program. What um, kind of internship work have you been doing or are you looking to do maybe in the future? Right now, I'm working in a day treatment program for children who um, have diagnosed social, emotional, and behavior disorders. So I help lead a classroom of six students, um, and there are three to four staff members in the classroom, and helping them learn healthy and effective ways to process their emotions, doing positive reinforcement to redirect behaviors, and supporting them and their families holistically. A lot of the kids that we work with um, are survivors of trauma um, and abusive situations, and helping a big part of our work is helping them learn how to talk about what has happened rather than show their behaviors in an intense physical reaction. But really, we support the kids where they're at and um, do not judge the children. A really important phrase that I learned years ago when I started this field is, when you see a child misbehaving, think what has happened to them rather than what is wrong with them. (laughs) And going in accordance with my future interest in continuing to work with parents, I would say that's a really important line to remember. When we see parents who are parenting in ways that we might not think are the most effective ways to parent, as long as no one's getting hurt, we think, what has happened to that parent? How were they raised? What is happening to them today versus what is wrong with that parent? So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing in my internship. And it's interesting to think about how important even just that mental shift can be in terms of inflecting your actions and the way that you do that work. And I imagine for people, even in less charged situations, maybe, or situations where that's not sort of the professional heart of your work, that actually would still be a really influential way to think about the world and think about other people. Absolutely. And really bringing in Brene Brown, who, as you mentioned, is probably the most Um, well-known social worker today, the power of vulnerability, talking about vulnerability and courage and what does it mean to have that mental strength and the strength in your heart. Hi there, I'm Robin Eijen, Director of Student Recruitment and an alumnus of the class of 2004. When it comes down to it, any institution is really a collection of people and I've always been proud to be part of this one. In the past few weeks, as the world has reacted to COVID-19, I've been even prouder. As we moved to online instruction, Puget Sound committed to paying its student employees for all of the hours they would have worked in the spring semester, and we've prorated room and board, meaning we refunded students for the days they're now not living on campus. We're paying our hourly staff members for their regular spring semester hours too, 
And here in admission, we've extended the decision deadline for admitted students to June 1 because we know students and families have a lot on their minds. In short, Puget Sound has responded to COVID-19 with the humanity, thoughtfulness, and heart that you find every week right here on the Puget Sound podcast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Maya, I also, of course, want to ask you about the common thread in this podcast, and that's your experiences at the University of Puget Sound. You graduated in 2016, is that right? Yes. And you had spent four years at Puget Sound, moved to Washington from Minnesota, and then moved back. Fill us in on those four years of Pacific Northwest, maybe starting with, do you remember how you ended up at Puget Sound? Absolutely. I ended up at Puget Sound for a few reasons. One, I have a sister who is two years older than me, and we all remember that college mail coming in, those stacks of letters. I'm responsible for some of that college mail now, so my apologies. (laughs) (laughs) We love it. We love it. But anyway, my sister actually got letters from Puget Sound. And I had never heard of it before and thought it was the weirdest name. I was like, Puget Sound, Pungent Sound, what is this place? So even a few years before I was looking at colleges, I looked up Puget Sound and fell in love with it. At that time in my life, I was interested in going into physical therapy or occupational therapy and was interested in possibly pursuing the 3-2 program that Puget Sound has to offer. So then fast forward a few years when it was my time to look at colleges, I did a Pacific Northwest tour with my family. And Puget Sound was the very first school I went to, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I will preface this with it was just before spring break. It was the first day it had not rained in two weeks, as we were told. So everyone was sunbathing, throwing their discs. So, of course, I think this is every day at Puget Sound. It's just (laughs) sunshine and rainbows, right? Um, No, but what I realized was after touring many other schools, Puget Sound was the only place I visited where every single person I met seemed genuinely happy to be there. From the faculty, to the staff in the sub, to the students, every single person seemed content to be there. And that was something that was very unique to my visit to Puget Sound specifically. That resonates with my experience as an enrolled student at Puget Sound too. I mean, when you said that, that felt... um, true to me in a way even beyond like oh maybe that's something you'd perceive once while you were visiting and then it would feel like that's 80 percent true or something once you arrived on campus I that feels very accurate to me and I appreciate you saying that Elena because that is true and that is how I felt all four years Mm -hmm. at Puget Sound so many you know I know one of our big phrases is home Mm -hmm. and it's true I truly felt at home all four years at Puget Sound. And even though I was crazy and left (laughs) for a job and for family in Minnesota, 
I still feel as though Tacoma and the university are my home. Mm. That's powerful, Maya. Thank you. One of the things that strikes me about that is that I think, and I now have a really front row seat to this, but that the moment in someone's life when they are about to go to college is oftentimes really vulnerable, right? And I think no matter how explicit you are about that vulnerability, it's, it's present for a lot of students. I hear that expressed in terms of, you know, everything from, I don't know if I'm going to make any friends to I sometimes some imposter syndrome, right? I don't know if I'm good enough for this to sometimes just a sense of like, I really hope I made the right choice, but I didn't have that feeling everybody talks about. I just sort of picked a school. Um, And so it is striking to me to hear you say that you did feel after four years at Puget Sound and now sometime down the road from that continue to feel such a strong connection and that that happens, right? And I think, you know, I don't want to extrapolate too much from my own experiences, but from what I understand, that's oftentimes a a shared experience from a lot of people who are Puget Sound alums. I agree with you, Elena. Something that I feel and others that I've talked to, we've all been very pleasantly surprised at the diversity of activities and experiences that Puget Sound students engage in. I definitely was not just involved with one friend group or one activity. Um, I spread myself across campus, and that is a very common theme of Puget Sound students. I call it the and list. Listeners of the podcast will be familiar. The idea that you are this major and this minor, and you studied abroad, and you were in these six clubs, and... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I love that. I absolutely love that. Remember that from your other podcasts. And... What's interesting is, as you mentioned before, often people feel imposter syndrome when they come to college. And with coming to Puget Sound, you can be yourself Mm. because there are so many types of people and everyone genuinely cares about one another. Even if you have interests that are so different from the person sitting next to you that you happen to sit next to in the sub, you can still have a great common connection and friendship. And people care about one another. I wonder if you will expand a little bit on how that experience evolved for you. And maybe if you'll run us through your own and list and talk about kind of the way that you got involved with those things on campus. Part of the reason I'm asking is I was giving a a meeting for admitted students the other day. And I was talking with a current student uh, about this exact phenomenon, right? That people are involved in a lot of things and do a lot of things. And one of the students that we have admitted, but who has not yet decided where she's going to go to college, asked a really thoughtful question. And she said, does that mean there's a lot of pressure to do a lot of stuff? And it's a great question. And I think oftentimes in high school, that's how this kind of analyst phenomenon manifests is a sort of keeping up with the Joneses. If I don't take all these AP classes, if I don't do all these extracurriculars, either I'm not doing good enough, back to your thing about should, um, or oftentimes under the guise of that's what I need to do to get into college. And I, it was a, a kind of a light bulb moment for me about distinguishing the Puget Sound analyst mentality, which I think of as almost wholly free from that kind of external pressure from the way that I think it actually manifests often for high school students. So to bring all that back to a question for you, I wonder if you can tell us about some of the things you were involved with on campus 
but also talk about kind of the chronology of your evolution into those different activities and communities? That's a great question, Elena. And I really, I resonate with what that woman said. Um, And if other people are thinking about going to college and listening to this, know that you can do whatever you want and people will love and celebrate and embrace you for who you are and what you choose to do. I, there were some activities at Puget Sound I started out with and then left because they didn't serve me anymore. And then I joined new activities and no one judged me for that. I started out on the ultimate Frisbee team and absolutely loved it. And then realized that I didn't have enough time to pursue other passions. So I stopped playing on the university's ultimate Frisbee team and joined a Tacoma intramural team. Um, I was part of the Hillel, which is the Jewish community on campus. A funny story, too, is with regards to Greek life. I, before going to college, the only thing I knew about Greek life was from that ABC family show, Greek. (laughs) You have seen that or anyone listening. (laughs) And it is a very stereotyped version of Greek life. And I went into college and to Puget Sound specifically like, thank goodness, there's such a small Greek life. I would never join something like that. Yada, yada. Well, um, off little Maya goes to Puget Sound and meets the most spectacular humans who then start talking about their time in Greek life. (laughs) And my stereotypes of Greek life went away because I met so many people who were smart, engaging, intellectual, goofy, everything amazing who are in Greek life. So I joined a sorority and I absolutely loved it. Um, And then my senior year, it didn't serve me anymore. So I left and then became the co-president of the Psychology Honor Society. Um, It gave me the opportunity, which gave me the opportunity to also engage in research projects within um, the psychology department. And I got to travel to Boston and San Diego, Los Angeles areas to present at psychology conferences, which was an aspect of college I never thought I would do. I never thought I would be interested in research or engage in research, let alone be able to fly across the country to present research. But long story short, my activities really did evolve. And I stayed open to new experiences. And I feel fortunate I have been always good at time management and really thought about what is serving me well at this point in my time. I have zero regrets from college, from anything that I joined or left, because I did what served me well in the time and was very deliberate about what I did. I also was an orientation leader my senior year, which was one of the most spectacular experiences that I wish I had done earlier in my time. Um, But basically just follow your heart and let your interests evolve. And one thing I'm struck by hearing you describe that is as you're saying, well, I did this for a little while and then I moved on to something else. Or I tried this and then I sort of adjusted the, the positionality that it had in my life. 
is I'm not hearing you talk about those things like failures, <laughs> right? I'm yeah. not hearing you talk about like, well, I decided the ultimate Frisbee team wasn't for me. And that means I'm not athletic or I was bad at ultimate Frisbee or that I never talked to anybody on the ultimate Frisbee team again. And I think that is really characteristic of Puget Sound's ethos around these types of things also is that, and so maybe to push back on that idea of like perfection everywhere, that part of the way that you get to a good complete whole life is you try some stuff out and some of it works out and some of it doesn't and some of it's good for a while and then you adjust. Uh, And that's striking to me as, as emblematic of that kind of experience too. Absolutely. And that's what college is about. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to try different things. You're absolutely right. I never thought of anything as a failure. Did I feel bad when I left certain activities or groups? Absolutely. (laughs) And they were very deliberate decisions that I had thought a lot about, consulted with people, consulted with my inner self. What would make me happy? What brings you joy? Mm -hmm. As Marie Kondo says, get rid of it if it doesn't bring you joy or however she phrases it. I've never actually seen the show, but everyone says I'm going to Marie Kondo this and that in my home. Marie Kondo, your activities. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. Give it time. Don't quit on the spot. Persevere. See how it feels. But if you're in it for long enough that you know in your gut it's not good, try something else because you will find amazing, amazing things to do and new people to meet. Well, and in that spirit, I want to ask you how you went from intending a career in physical therapy or occupational therapy to majoring in psychology and pursuing a master's of social work. How, how did that evolution shake out? It started with chemistry class my freshman year of college, the only class in my, all of my four years that I did not like. And chemistry was a prereq for PT and OT. And if I decided to do med school one day, and I just realized, I mean, chemistry is fabulous. I'm not hating on chemistry just for <laughs> my, how my brain is structured. It did not work out. I took chemistry and then realized it was so physical. And I was really interested in more what was happening like mentally and emotionally with people. Mm-hmm. So my freshman advising class was actually intra allied health professions. And we got to explore a bunch of different, as the name says, allied health professions. So I actually shadowed a bunch of people. I shadowed PTs and OTs and realized what they did is phenomenal. I absolutely love it, but it wasn't for me. Um, and then I shadowed speech pathologists and was also very, very interested in speech pathology. But I realized I was more interested in how someone's family dynamics are impacting their Mm. development rather than how um, a speech impediment might affect them. Oh, interesting. Sure. And so that's what really led me on the path to psychology, which is what I majored in at Puget Sound and absolutely loved it and loved the department. Um. But then I was really grappling with, do I stay in the field of psychology or go to social work? What led me to social work was actually my psychology practicum, which was an internship my senior year. And I think every psychology major does one, right? That's part of the way the degree is structured. I believe so. But I'm such an old lady at this point. (laughs) 
I don't remember, to be honest with you. So we'll, we'll do some digging. But if it's not required, anyone who is listening to this who's a psychology student, hands down, do practicum if you are able to. That is one of the most amazing experiences to really get that hands-on learning opportunity. So anyway, I was an, a practicum student at an organization in Tacoma called the New Phoebe House Association. They are um, essentially a sober house for moms of children under the age of seven who have recently come out of homelessness and the mothers have come out of chemical um, dependency treatment. And it's a home for them to be reunited with their kids um, because the kids had to be separated from the moms when the moms were um, dealing with alcohol and drug use and abuse and in treatment. So I led groups for the moms and the kids and helped with the reunification. And that was what really got me interested in that really biopsychosocial model that social work lens is. Um, and it was from that internship that led me to that first job out of college hmm. where I worked with young families coming out of homelessness. And from there on, I really realized that I'm interested in um, working, you know, help supporting people's mental health, which is the psychology realm, and also looking at systems and how do systems impact people's development, um, looking at how trauma impacts people's development, how racism and systemic racism and oppression, um, how that can, that really impacts people's development. and even understanding how homelessness we've learned can change the architecture of a child's brain. So again, going back to the fact, not what is wrong with you, but what has happened to you if a kid is behaving in a way that you, you might think they should behave differently. Mm. You know, things in life impact you and they impact kids especially. And to be able to support these kids and families really holistically was very important to me. I'm going to ask you a huge question about that. Oftentimes when we think, and again, regular listeners of the podcast know this, but I'll say I was a sociology and anthropology major at Puget Sound. So I also spent a lot of time thinking about environmental inequity and the way that the world is structured and the impact that that has on individuals um, or groups, right? One of the things that I think sort of all roads lead to in any kind of social science is the idea that you cannot isolate a single variable. That it is, and the, the sort of colloquial example of this that I think most people are going to be familiar with is the nature-nurture debate. Yes. That we have never been able to totally untwine how much is anything, really, a behavioral manifestation, a health issue, the result of some kind of genetic proclivity or tendency and how much is it the result of environmental influence? So what this is all coming around to is when you yourself think about how do I support, how do I contribute, how do I offer resources, how do you think about sort of the enormous challenges here that are all intertwined and that have a lot of really big systemic root causes? How do you figure out what crack to get into? That's a good question. 
And are you just for clarification, yeah, please asking what crack, what niche do, did I want to be in? Oh, thank you for asking. I'm thinking about how do you go about starting to make an impact? When you think about the fact that oftentimes these individual circumstances are shaped by these big structural forces, how do you know where to start on an individual level in a way that will make a difference? Before starting, even before that, you need to remind yourself, one, I am not here to be a savior. Mm -hmm. So, so often... People think, I'm going to go save these people's lives. I'm going to go travel to this part of the world or this part of my community to save these people's lives. X that out of your mind. We are not their saviors. We, are people, we can be people's cheerleaders, but people that we work with, people who might be struggling, they're those beautiful, strong, resilient humans who have had things happen to them. And that's why they're coming to us for support. So first things first, get rid of that savior mentality and realize that you can provide tools for people's toolbox, but it's their decision. They also, you can provide tools, but um, it's kind of a two-way street at the Mm -hmm. same time. I think about it as a bridge metaphor. You can go halfway across the bridge to meet your clients, and they also have to meet you halfway across the bridge. And sometimes we have to go way farther across the bridge. (laughs) Um, But first and foremost, before you even get into the work, think about that. Um, And what is your intention for doing the work? If it's to save people's lives, you need to shift your mentality, first and foremost, Um, especially if you're a white person working with predominantly communities or people of color. But how to find more of your niche is what are you passionate about? What areas like really strike a chord in you? Maybe you've been listening to the news and you've been listening a lot about climate change. Get into a niche where you can help fight climate change. For me, I've always been interested in maternal child health and that profound impact that parents have on their children, which is how I got into that niche. But there's no one right way to start, I guess. It's what opportunities present themselves, if there's case management positions that open up, um, if there's local volunteering events. I know way back when in high school, I started volunteering at um, a local children's hospital, and that's what helped me get interested in um, working kind of in the healthcare field. So do your research, but know that there's no one right place to start and there's no such thing as a perfect beginning, middle or end to anything. Maya, we end all of our conversations by asking everybody the same four questions. First question is, what's your favorite place on campus? Woo-wee. <laughs> I love hearing people answer these four questions on the podcast, by the way. It's, it's so <laughs> fun hearing what everyone says. I would say it is very hard to pinpoint one place on the most beautiful campus in the world. We're not biased or anything, though. <laughs> um, it's funny. I love the alien landing pad. If people know that circular grass area outside of 
Thomas Hall. And um, I love it for a few reasons. One is you can often, on a nice day, see Mount Rainier, which everyone knows is like gold. Mm-hmm. You can also see so much of campus. You look out and you can see the quad. You can, I don't know if you can see the library from there, mm-hmm. but you can, you can. Okay. It's been so long. I need to get back there. <laughs> Um, but I just remember so much is happening. You're seeing people, you know, walking around and seeing Mount Rainier, people throwing discs or playing soccer. So I love it. And I love the name. Well, as a paid employee of the university, I feel compelled to mention that I think that area is actually called the events lawn, like on a map. I've never heard anybody call it anything but the alien landing pad. My (laughs) entire four years, I like... I, I guess if I thought about it, I would have known that wasn't like, we didn't write that on directions. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I was graduated and working here. By the time anybody ever referred to the event line, I think I said, where is that? Because it is, it's this raised circular patch of grass and it does look like a flying saucer should land and take off from it. Well, I think we have some really important work to do and we need to see how we petition this or talk to President <laughs> Crawford. President Crawford, if you're listening... This would be a great change to campus. The, like, the Maya Richmond alien landing pad. Oh, that <laughs> would we're be headed for. <laughs> that would be an honor. Maya, the second question is what are you reading right now? I am reading a book called Somebody Else's Daughter by Elizabeth Brundage. I found it on my sister's bookshelf right <laughs> before coronavirus. It's about a uh, young mother and father who give birth to a baby girl and the mom is addicted to drugs. This kind of goes with the theme of my work. (laughs) Uh, And they decide what's best for the baby is giving the baby up for adoption. So they give the baby up for adoption to this very wealthy couple. And then like 15, 16 years down the road, the biological father wants to re unite with his Mm. daughter who he hasn't seen since birth and so he takes up a teaching position at the ritzy private school where this girl goes to school and right now he's her teacher but she doesn't know anything else so i better keep reading it what's the best place to eat in tacoma two places one rosewood cafe two ice cream social Three for a bonus place when your parentals or guardians are with you, Dukes on the waterfront. Maya, to wrap us up, what makes Puget Sound special? Puget Sound is special for a million reasons, but for the sake of this podcast, I will go back to the point that I made earlier about what made me decide to come to Puget Sound. The fact that everyone there seems so genuinely happy to be there and cares for one another. That raw compassion that everyone has is so beautiful and unique to our campus and community. Maya Richmond, thanks for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Elena Becker, it is my honor and privilege. Thanks for listening to P.S. The Puget Sound Podcast. 
If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast.